All right, turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. It can be found on page 801 in, the, in your pew Bible in front of you. Malachi 1, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 5. It's on page 801 in the pew Bible. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we turn our hearts and minds towards your word now and ask that you would give us wisdom and insight into it, that we might know you better. We do ask this morning that our doubts, any doubts that we have, would be turned to praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have sometimes wondered, what is it that actually enables someone to pursue God with great passion and fervor and zeal, while others develop indifference to God? I have sometimes wondered, why is it in our own lives that we go through various seasons of passionately pursuing God and the things of God, and at other times we we go through the motions? And the implications of this carry over to other relationships as well, right? We think of our own relationships with our spouse or our children, And I think the most fundamental, at the most fundamental level, the answer is related to love and knowing and recognizing love. There is a sense in our nature for us to develop a greater love for God. In order for us to develop a greater love for God, we must recognize that we are loved by God. Right? For us to develop a greater love for God, we must recognize that we have been loved and are loved by God. In other words, the, the basis for, the covenant, for our covenant loyalty and having a, a renewed commitment to God to obey Him is recognizing God's covenant love for us. When we consider the historical context and setting of this book, we're reminded that Israel was in a place of spiritual apathy. They had lost their passion for God about 70 years after they had arrived back in the promised land. Life was hard for Israel. They were expecting God's promises to come to pass right now. But when they looked at their circumstances, they became discouraged. They became indifferent to the things of God. And we observed last week that they were going through the motions of religion without any heart in it. It wasn't that they had denied the faith, but they had a reluctant, half-hearted obedience to God. And through Malachi, God is calling them out of spiritual apathy and to covenant 
loyalty. We, we observed that this book is a wake-up call for God's people to return to God and to be faithful to their covenant relationship with him. And so for there to be a renewed passion and commitment to God, the book opens up with this first dispute, calling God's people to recognize God's covenant love for them. Okay, so I, I mentioned this last week, that the structure of Malachi is around six disputes. Okay, so we saw there are six disputes that we're going to see throughout this book, and it's arranged in four parts. Number one, there's a charge by God. Number two, God's people respond by asking a question. Number three, God answers their claim. He gives an answer to their claim. And then four, God applies the answer with a warning or a promise of the future and for the future. And so these verses in two through five reveal this first dispute in the book. And so I want to follow this pattern in Malachi's flow of thought. So what we have this morning for you is four points. Almost every other Sunday, I give you a three-point sermon. Well, today, it's four. All right? So first, and we'll move quickly through this first point, God's love is declared for his people. So notice the first part of verse 2. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. When your child displays a half-hearted obedience the first thing that you probably would do, perhaps, is what? Correct them. Oftentimes, when we observe a reluctant attitude in our kids, what we do is rebuke them. And of course, that's necessary. And this book highlights several areas in which God's people need to be corrected. They need to be rebuked for their actions. So we don't gloss over and allow disobedience to continue, right? We, we, we shouldn't. But what God does here in this opening statement, I think, is remarkable. He first assures his people of his love for them. God declares his love for his people. Instead of initially exposing the, the problems and in their relationship and the issues that he has with the way they're living, he first reminds them of his love for them. I have loved you, says the Lord. This phrase, I have loved you, implies a covenant relationship between God and his people. Like that of a husband and a wife. God's love is a devoted covenant commitment to his people. The phrase also implies that God has loved them in the past and has continued to love them all the way up to the present, right? It's not, I loved you once and I don't love you anymore. No, it's, I've loved you all the way in the past, all the way up to the present. There's an ongoing, abiding love of God for his people. God's love is unconditional. Like that of a father to his children, his love for them is not dependent upon his, their actions, Oftentimes, what we need to be reminded of when we go through challenging times like that of the Israelites is that we are loved by God. Though God's people had been unfaithful in their covenant relationship with him, God remained faithful and loyal, and he confronts them with the reality of his love. So the first assertion has been made, God has set his covenant love upon his 
people. He loves them with an everlasting love. Second, God's love is doubted by his people. God God declares his love for his people. Now God's love is doubted by his people. Second part of verse 2. But you say, how have you loved us? When you tell your spouse that you love them, how do you expect them to respond? When you tell your child, a child that you love them, what sort of reply would you expect? When we say the words, I love you, we should rightly expect, I love you too. I love you. I love you too. One of the most shocking responses we could imagine and a sign that there are problems in the relationship is the question, how? How? That's exactly what Israel is saying to God. How have you loved us? They want evidence They want proof that God loves them. This is their attitude toward God in their current situation. They want to know in what ways God loves them. Because in their current context, they don't see it. They aren't necessarily questioning God's love for them in the past, but primarily they're doubting his love in their present situation and present circumstances. In other words, if God still loves us, then why are these things happening to us? If God still loves us, then why aren't the nations streaming in? Why are we still under the thumb of a foreign ruler? Where are the blessings of the covenant? Where's the promise of the coming king and the victory that the Lord is going to win for us? And so they became skeptics of God's love. They, they doubt and question whether God really loves them. How, how does this happen? Why did they begin to doubt God's love for them? How, how does this happen in our own lives? Two, observa- two observations we could make. Number one, we can doubt God's love when we forget what God has already done for us. And we lose sight of the amazement of his grace toward us. It's as though Israel had forgotten that God had restored them back to the promised land. Number two, we can begin to doubt God's love when we observe his love for us through the lens of our own experiences and expectations. You can doubt We can be tempted to doubt his love when we look at our circumstances and our expectations. For example, when we suffer or go through some sort of trial or struggle, we can be tempted to doubt God's love, right? Perhaps you've seen this in your own life. You're going through something hard and challenging. You begin to doubt whether God really loves you. Israel was looking at God's love through the lens of their own experiences and expectations, We can have the tendency to do that too. We can be tempted to doubt God's love when we look at our own circumstances. We could think like this. If you love me, then why am I dealing with this trial? Why am I currently going through this illness or disease or cancer? Why am I dealing with a wayward child? 
If you love me, God, why am I having difficulty in my marriage? If you love me, God, why am I having financial difficulty? If you love me, why aren't those I'm witnessing to getting saved? Why is ministry hard? And so what we need to be reminded of this morning is that we need to recognize God's love for us even when we don't feel it. Israel focused their attention on their present circumstances with unmet expectations. And they were filled with doubt. It resulted in doubt. And this would result in a lifestyle that no longer had a passion to pursue God or the ways of God. If you doubt God's love, this is what's happening in Malachi. If you doubt God's love, which is why I think he's starting with love, it can lead into a slide of disobedience, indifference, and ultimately disobedience. The burden of the word of the Lord from the very beginning of this book is to remind God's people of his covenant love for them so that it overflows in a renewed covenant commitment to him and to other areas of life as they seek to live for God in all areas of life. My hope this morning, my hope this morning for you is that you won't leave here doubting God's love for you but that you will be completely convinced that God loves you and he is, has a steadfast love for you. And that's my hope for you this morning. Third, third point is this. We ask, we're asking the questions, how is God's love then displayed, right? How does God reply to their question and, and doubt? How do we see God's love for Israel? God is going to answer their claim, then apply it with a promise in the future. God's love. So first we see here in point three, God's love is displayed in his past actions. God's love is displayed in his past actions. Look with me at verses two and three. So all of two and then three. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now here's the answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. How does God answer Israel's doubt? And the first answer given to their doubt is God's work in the past, in history. Rather than looking at what they don't have, Israel is told to recognize God's love by looking at their past, not only to their past, but by looking around at the nations, specifically the nation of Edom, who were descendants of Esau. What God says in the last part of verse 2, all the way through 5, in fact, is given to reassure them of his love for them. So God starts by making a comparison. He points back to their history and compares Jacob and Esau. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Of course he is. They're twins, right? You know the story. They're, they're twins. And then God says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Malachi is taking us back to the history of these two nations, Israel and Edom, which came from Jacob and Esau. 
And perhaps you're familiar with this story, and I, I wish I had more time to explain it in detail. But I just want to highlight some key points. As you recall, God made a covenant with Abraham to bless him and his offspring. And through his offspring, God would bless the nations. So God made a covenant with Abraham. And then the promise was given to Isaac. And then Isaac grows up and marries Rebekah. And then she becomes pregnant and with twins. And in Genesis 25, 23, she is told this. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And then she gives birth to Esau, the older, and Jacob, the younger son. And what we learn from Genesis in this account is that both men were sinful. Esau was immoral and unholy. He married Canaanite women. And Jacob, he lived up to his name. He was a deceiver. He was a a trickster. He took Esau's birthright and the blessing. And the covenant established with Abraham was given to Isaac, right? From Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob, whose name was then changed. You recall this part in the story, whose name is changed to Israel. So for God to say, I have loved you, I have loved Jacob, is to say that God set his love on Jacob to be the chosen instrument through whom the blessing would come through Abraham, through whom the promises given to Abraham might come, to be the one who ultimately, through whom the Christ would come and thus bring blessings to the nations. And in doing so, in Malachi's day, they could, Israel could look back at God's past actions and be assured of God's love for them. Even though they went into exile, even like Jacob did. These stories are remarkable because they're like mere images of each other. Even though they went into exile, just like Jacob in fleeing from his brother, that wasn't the end of the story for Israel. God restored them. He brought them back to the land. So I would suggest to you that for God to say, Jacob, I have loved, I have loved Jacob, is to reassure Israel of his covenant love for them. It was displayed in their restoration. Was it because they were good people? No. Was it because they had great potential? No. Was it because they were smarter? No. Was it because of anything they had done or would do? No. It was simply because he loved them. God is saying, history testifies to my love for you. I've restored you, Israel. But look at Edom. Look at the descendants of Esau. Notice what God says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So what's going on here? What does it mean, Esau, I have hated? Some have suggested that the phrase, Esau, I have hated, means to love less. This is certainly possible. It's been observed that in Hebrew, at times, they use the word hate to stress something strongly, as in a comparison. Right? For example, let me give you some examples of this. In Genesis 29, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. 
And then the next verse says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, loved Rachel more than Leah, and then the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Or in the New Testament, in Matthew 10.36, there's, there's several instances of this. Matthew 10.36, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then the parallel passage in Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to me, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a way of contrasting two things in order to stress the priority of the one over the other. So here it could refer to how much God has loved Jacob. And there's certainly truth to this, but I think it's more than this. I think there's more going on here. I think it's tied to the covenant relationship that God had made with Israel. It's not any emotional hatred toward Esau. The terms love and hate here are not described, are not used to describe an emotion that God feels, but rather actions that he carries out towards the nations, Israel and Edom. Okay, that's what's really going on here. Israel is reassured of God's love for them by looking at the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Notice what he says. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. In other words, judgment has come upon Edom. The imagery of jackals of the desert taking over Edom was the outcome of God's judgment. It it reveals a picture of an uninhabited, disinherited wasteland. Though Edom had dwelt secure, they would be punished for their sins. Centuries earlier, Edom dwelt secure while Israel was then carted off, exiled to Babylon. And the Edomites, I don't know if you know the story, the Edomites were allies of the Babylonians. Psalm 137.7 says this, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, now listen to what Edom said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And when you read Obadiah, we learn of Edom's sins against Israel. If you get a chance, read the book of Obadiah. I believe it's 21 verses. That's it. We learn of Edom's sins against Israel. Verse 11 in Obadiah. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. You get a picture of, of Edomites. Edom would be humbled for their wicked actions towards God's, toward God's people. So God lays waste Esau's hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Israel could therefore be assured of God's love 
by looking at the past. So an application. Present circumstances, right? whether, whether good or bad, whether having material blessings or not, are not signs that God loves you or is for you. If you wonder how you know if God loves you so that you won't doubt his love, look to the past. Look to the past. God's love was fully displayed for us in his past actions of sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, and my hope is that everyone would, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, then you can have certainty. You can have certainty that God has set his covenant love upon you. God is for us. Nothing can separate us and separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. The assurance of God's love revealed in the past should humble us. It should cause us to be thankful. It should remove doubt. And it should lead to praise. And that's what we see in our final point. So fourth and finally, God's love is evident in his future promises. We can be assured of God's love not only by looking to the past, but by looking to the future and what God has promised. So look with me now at verses 4 and 5. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So what we see here is a further explanation of God's judgment upon the wicked nation of Edom and the change that takes place within Israel. Unlike Israel, who had returned to the land, rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, Edom would experience ongoing judgment for their rebellion and wickedness. Ezekiel 25, 12 and 13 says this, Thus says the Lord God, Because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate. Obadiah, back in Obadiah again, verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So what we see here in verse 4 is that though Edom rebuilds, Likely out of an arrogant, self-reliant attitude, God will tear it down. I will do this. I will do this. Though they seek to do this, I will do this. They will be called the wicked country and the people of whom the Lord is angry forever. 
In other words, because of their pride and rebellion and their ongoing opposition to God and his people, the nation would experience God's justice and wrath. God gives them over to their wickedness. They're called a a wicked country because that's exactly what they are. Edom would not get away with their idolatry and injustice and mistreatment of God's people and their ongoing rebellion against God. They would remain under his wrath. God's love for his people is evident in his future promises. Verse 5, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The fact that Israel will see and say, Great is the Lord, is to reverse their fortunes, isn't it? It's to reverse the doubt that they had previously had concerning God's love for them. So they move. They're moved from doubt to praise. They had not seen any evidence of God's love in their current circumstance. And now they will see it. And it will lead to worship. God's greatness is made known throughout the borders, beyond the borders of Israel. This reveals to God's people that their God is king over the world. Righteousness and justice shall reign. And one of the ways God shows his love for us is by making himself known to us that he is the ruler, that he is the king over the world. God's people were focused on themselves and on their circumstances, and they failed to see what God was doing in the world. And now God makes it clear of what He will do in the future so that God's people can rest secure in His love and praise Him for who He is. These verses then highlight the basis for covenant loyalty to God. So as we conclude, if we are going to overcome doubt, if we're going to overcome discouragement and develop a renewed passion for God and be filled with hearts of, of praise and gratitude toward God and declaring his greatness and worth, then we must start with recognizing God's love for us. Look back to the past and God's love displayed for you on the cross where his love and his justice meet. As the Son of God bore the wrath reserved for you and me so that we might become children of God, brought into the covenant promise through faith in Jesus Christ. Look to the past and God's love displayed for you on the cross. And look forward. Look forward to what God has promised for those who love him at the return of Jesus Christ, where God's greatness will be seen beyond the border of Israel and into the entire world. 
So may you, this week, may you rest assured of God's love for you. Let's sing of his love for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to have a renewed passion, a renewed commitment to you. We want to overcome doubt and discouragements in our own lives in light of the circumstances we face. And so what we need is to to be reminded of your great love for us. What we need to hear is what you did in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins so that we can be right with you. I pray that we would declare your greatness. We would declare your love for us. It would overwhelm us and it would result and we would respond in a in a heart that seeks to obey you in all that we do and say. Would you give us grace this week as we go? In Jesus' name, amen.